0: Hi everyone, this is Katherine from the Media Education Lab, and you're listening to the Courageous Rhode Island podcast, the show that finds common ground, builds media literacy skills, and encourages curiosity for the people of Rhode Island. In this episode, our host Renee Hobbs talks to Michael Jagoda, who serves as URI's Director of Public Safety, as well as Chief of Police. He also served as Commander of the Connecticut State Police at the time of the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. Today, you'll hear Jagoda talk about current challenges facing law enforcement, the relationship between hate speech and hate crimes, and law enforcement's involvement in violence prevention. Hey, I'm Renee Hobbs, and welcome to the Courageous R.I. podcast. Uh, Today, I am here with Michael Jagoda. He is the University of Rhode Island's uh, Director of Public Safety, and he's the Chief of the Police. And before this, he was a commander in charge of the Connecticut State Police. And um, during the mass shootings, uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School, that we all remember back in 2012. uh, And he was awarded a meritorious commendation from the Sandy Hook Elementary School for the the work he did in that horrific uh, massacre. Um, Michael, one of the things when we started the Courageous RI project is we were really eager to engage law enforcement professionals with educators, librarians, small business owners, uh, members of, uh, members of our, our diverse Rhode Island community. Um, and in a way, um, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the potential of Courageous RI is because I think we need more dialogue um, between law enforcement and citizens, um, and and I wonder from from your point of view, what makes this a particularly important and challenging time to um, to be in the field of law enforcement?
1: Well, Renee, I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak with you today, you know, and I want to congratulate you and, and Pam, you know, on the on the grant that you received for this. This is a great, great. Um, Thing that you're doing. And, and, you know, when we talk about communication, I think that's, we see a lot of challenges with communication. And we, especially in law enforcement, when we talk about building trust um, and confidence with our, our community members, um, with our partners, communication. And I think that's what this program is all about. is about effective communication, listening to understand. You know, we, we sometimes we listen to respond. And I think we really need to change the way we we communicate and, and listen to understand and value, and embrace and, and appreciate uh, everyone's, you know, uniqueness and differences. So some of the different, some of the challenges that we're seeing in law enforcement right now, you know, I still think we're seeing some challenges with what happened with the George Floyd incident. That's, you know, well over two years ago, um, building those trust and confidence, especially with our our underrepresented multilanguage uh, community uh, of members. Um, that's one of the big things that we're working on in terms of community policing. And for me, it's about not doing feel good type of program. It's about listening to our community members and addressing their concerns and their issues and, and in partnership, addressing those um, in collaboration to, to, to again, to build that trust and confidence, but also to solve those uh, issues. Um, and then the other part is the retention um, and recruitment of really um, high-quality um, people that want to come into our field. Um, I think it's so important that we go out and we recruit the right people in terms of values um, that we want to we want to have in, in this field. Um, so those are kind of the challenges that we're having right now, um, you know, before COVID and, and post-COVID now that we're seeing right. those two different things. So we, right. we have to continue... To not rest on our laurels in terms of what we did yesterday, we have to continue to build those relationships uh, with our community members.
0: Right. You know, of course, one of the things I'm fascinated about is how um, how media shape our ideas about what fields like law enforcement are like. And I've been fascinated at how, s- since George Floyd, there's been a very clear effort to make the law enforcement stories. Uh, we see on TV, um, kind of be more realistic, be more complex, be more humane. Uh, I'm watching a show. I don't know if you're watching this, but I really do love it. I'm plugging it for our listeners because it's just, it's such a good, not everybody watches crime media, right? But, right. um, East New York. Okay. East New I've York heard. is worth watching because of the way it depicts the, relationships and the humanity of law enforcement professionals and the complex relation they have with the community, right? And it's, um, it's good TV drama, but it also feels like it's um, mm. reflecting the efforts that you're making, uh, you and law enforcement are making to attract the best and brightest to find ways to connect to the community and to overcome people's fear. You know, fear, anxiety, and doubt, um, so just saying that we might do a we might in a in one of the courageous episodes, we might use a little clip from that show uh, just to talk a little bit about how entertainment media gives us messages uh, about um, about crime and about violent extremism and about law enforcement um, yeah. but have, but getting to talk to real people, that's the best. So now you and I recently attended this really interesting meeting. It was called United Against Hate. It featured folks from the FBI, folks from the uh, district, uh, the U.S. District Attorney's Office. And it it was really designed to show how collaboration between federal and local officials and community members can help to reduce hate, the hate that leads to violence. Uh, Why is this work important? And um, thinking back about that, in that program, what insights stood out to you?
1: Yeah, you know, you know, I think, I think, you know, the the increase in violence directed towards hate because of certain um, races, gender, you know, religious um, is it, very concerning. And and what that um, workshop really did was we really talked about strategies to prevent you know, in, and to respond to hate crimes and incidents. You know, we've seen an increase in it. We've seen an increase in the anti-Semitic um, incidents that we've we've experienced, especially in our region. Um, you know, it all goes back to, again, building trust and confidence with, with our, our our community members. Um, so I think it's important, you know, myself being an FBI National Academy graduate, I, I think what you see is a true commitment by law enforcement. You had the FBI there. You had the U.S. Attorney's Office there. You had local and state uh, um, law enforcement. The commitment that we want to make in terms of not allowing this to happen in, in our communities and working in partnership with, with our community members um, to, to prevent this, to say it, we, there's no tolerance for it and you're going to be held responsible if, if, if you're going to, uh, in terms of hate crimes or hate incidents. So you know, here at URI, we've made a commitment. Uh, we actually have a civil rights hate crimes um, officer. He's a sergeant, and he works with our U.S. attorney's office and with our AG, our, our, our local uh, attorney general's office, who has a hate crimes unit. And when we see something, it could be graffiti, it could be something related to a, a property crime, of a certain individual, we work with with both of those, our 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 federal and our state partners in term determining if that is a hate crime, and then finding out who's responsible for it. Because we once we see fear, um, kind of injected into our community, that creates a lot of mistrust. It creates we shouldn't be living in fear. Our our community members um, should. Feel safe. They should feel appreciated. They should be feel valued. And um, I think once we show that, you know, in terms of safety and security, we're not going to tolerate that as a community. Not only as a law enforcement, but as a community. I think it's very important. You know, I, I think I might have talked about this a little bit in terms of our community at URI. We're very fortunate to to live in a. It's not perfect, um, but we, you know, we we discourage that kind of. Uh, behavior, those kind of actions, and we're going to hold those people accountable uh, for those types of actions. And we have our values here at the at the URI community are very, you know, transformational goals that we have um, in terms of um, appreciating everybody is is truly remarkable.
0: So, in some ways, that idea that um, coming together as a community to uh, kind of Exp- to express where we draw the line, what kinds of communication are unacceptable, what we do not uh, want to see in our community—that that's kind of a uh, an effort that involves both law enforcement and community. You know, for me, the big takeaway from that event was how beautifully they drew the line between um, hate speech, which is constitu- constitutionally protected by the First Amendment, and 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 hate incidents, and then hate action, hate crime. And the way in which I began to see as they explained it, it's a continuum, right? And so while hate speech is protected, hate speech is an indicator of hate incidents, which is an indicator of hate crime. And that that relationship between those three dimensions was, I thought, beautifully Kind of explain, but it's a, it's a complex. There's, a, there's some complexity to that uh, relationship there. And, um, I think the public doesn't have a good understanding of, um, the relationship between why, why hate speech is of concern because of the way it can lead to hate incidents and hate crime. Uh, in your career, uh, how have you encountered the relationship between speech and action?
1: Yeah, it, you know, you make a good point about it being com- complex, especially being a state institution, you know, where we're we are a little bit different than a private uh, higher ed, where, you know, there's a First Amendment right, and we have to really weigh that, the checks and balance of making sure that that free speech doesn't, it doesn't become discriminatory. It doesn't become biased. Doesn't become r- racial in tone, and and discriminate uh, and become hate uh, a hate incident or a hate crime. So you know you, you talk very eloquently about being at a fine line, and, and I think it's very important that um, when we're when we're working with our community that we kind of set the ground rules in terms of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. Um, and we've seen that in terms of protest, you know, in the in the in the past eighteen, twenty-four months, um, and making sure that those, you know, they have the right to express the First Amendment, but it doesn't overstep and become a criminal element.
0: Right, right. One of the things that the uh, FBI said was that they encouraged people to uh, report hate incidences. Uh, and how does that work on URI's campus? Like, how do how do you how do you find out about uh, these incidences? What's the process that occurs usually?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, punching here at a theme in terms of again building trust and confidence. So, you know, we of course we have reporting mechanisms in terms of you know confidentiality and, and a tips hotline. Um, and, and different things like that, but I, I think what our community members feel comfortable that we're going to take those seriously. We're going to um, that that's important to us. That there's not going to be retribution or retaliation. Um, so building those those community policing outreach programs are so important. That's where we 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 meet each other and we feel comfortable. And it's not the first time you know, when we're reporting a crime or incident. That's not the first time we're coming into interaction with each other. You know, we break down those barriers and we we trust each other and that we're going to do the right thing. So I think it really starts, again, with community outreach, community policing, reaching out to different groups, not only, you know, in terms of HRL, housing and residential life, but really our student groups. Um, going to student Senate, going to faculty Senate, meeting with them and, and, you know, talking through some of, maybe some of those barriers or, or challenges that we have. Um, I think that's a start. Of course, we have other mechanisms where you can report in terms of calling 911, calling our administrative number. We have a tips line that's anonymous. Um, And and like the U.S. attorney mentioned in the FBI, we'll we'll investigate those, even though if you don't want to make a formal complaint, we'll we'll investigate those. Um,
0: You know, you said something that so you're reminding me of something you said in the meeting that I thought was super powerful. And you said something like it's the community relationships over time that builds the trust. So people feel comfortable. They're reporting something about. Their grandson or their brother in law or somebody in the neighborhood uh they they feel you know concerned they they're concerned enough to report but they're also concerned for the person the human being that they're that they're uh that they're worried about that they're afraid might uh 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 engage in violence um and you said something really I thought very powerful and you said something like on a university campus uh you have a turnover of <laughs> The whole population right, basically right. every four years or every six years, and I thought, oh, that makes the communication job like much harder or maybe much more continual uh how do the how did the how does your force how do they how do they um, uh find ways to uh connect what are some of the most successful uh sort of student outreach Uh, programs that have, or approaches that are, that are, that you've, that you've had success with.
1: Right. So I, I think it's actually energizing for us as police officers, as public safety, because we, we, you know, sometimes you get stale and you, you kind of rest, you know, I've made these relationships. We've done these programs. Why do we have to do them again? But now we're dealing with a new community every four years or really every year. And it really energizes our our officers. And we, we talk about being part of a, you know, as, as faculty, um, you know, you talk about what you want from your students in terms of innovation and creativity. And that's what I ask my officers to be, more creative, be more innovative, and so we got a lot of feedback from them in terms of community outreaching programs and different things that they that work, and they they have students, they have children that are, are here at the university or other universities, and they understand um, what our students are looking for. Um, we've made a commitment at this uh, university in terms of a full-time community police officer, Paul Herrihan, who really... Um, has a great rapport with, with, you know, our faculty, our staff and our students and listens to their concerns and engages them on a daily basis and, and really gets positive feedback. Um, so, it, it you know, it can be something simple as dealing with food insecurities. You know, people would think that we would have that here on a college campus, but we do. We have a lot of food insecurities and maybe, you know, having a participating in raising money for our food pantry or having food out on the quad. And then we break down those barriers with those conversations just to get to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so beautiful. Different, different events like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we do a lot of events with our our, our student uh, organizations, with our Greeks. Um, so we have a great, we, we, we have a, a, a crest program where we do after shooter with our faculty and our, and our staff. So I think it's very important in terms of um, the holistic part of, of of that. So again, the the officers are really um, they're energized by by this community, by this the energy that's here. Um, so wow. I think that's important. And for me, as a leader, you know the George Floyd incident and COVID, I, I don't see those as uh, I, I think it's an opportunity to reimagine policing you know, look at instead of the guardian mindset, uh, the warrior mindset, we look at the guardian mindset in terms of how can we do better? How can we uh, look at those incidents and learn from those incidents and make our profession better and, 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 you know, more collaboration with our community members?
0: Mm, So beautiful. You know, that's the protect and serve ethos, That uh, we really uh, is essential for uh, societies to flourish, right? And that 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 protect and serve together uh, is is makes a huge contribution. Especially, I think uh, in in your work in dealing with um, mass shootings and the campus shootings we've been encountering recently. Most recently, just the the Michigan State event and the. I think the public might not fully appreciate how much behind the scenes training and preparation you do like as prevention. Can you talk a little bit about how do law enforcement professionals think about prevention? Because we think you, you deal with violence, but we don't always think about law enforcement being involved in violence prevention. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah. You you know, you know, when it comes to like active shooters now and, and something that's very concerning—we're not seeing a decrease in them. You know, it's alarming. The FBI doesn't have all the statistics out yet for 2022 yet, but we we saw about a 52% increase in in mass shootings. And the FBI really defines that as a incident—you know, single incident where three or more people are killed because of a firearm. Um, this year already, I think we're well over 75 mass shootings for, and we're we're not even, you know. First three months of the year. So um it's something that's, you know, you mentioned my background in terms of Sandy Hook, the role I played there. You know, we also, in my short career with the Connecticut State Police in, in 1998, you know, we had the uh, lottery shooting in Newington where four people were killed. And then in 2010, we had the uh, Manchester distributors and up the Hartford distributors shooting up in manchester where eight people were killed so when i hear people say it can't happen here and and then of course sandy Hook, where i re, you know took an active role and, and i was the instant commander command post there um we we had 26 people killed there and we're, we're seeing more and more mass shootings uh happen daily so it's very concerned so in, in terms of prevention um you know i i think we owe it to our community members to help train them we've made a commitment to train our officers um we have a couple of uh, officers who are instructors uh, that went through the fbi training um and they are active shooter instructors and we train regularly as a police department we've trained other police departments we've given them their equipment to make sure they can properly respond and we 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 have a a, a training program called Cress. it's a civilian response to an active shooter event and um we train our students, our faculty, and, and our our staff how to respond. You know, if it doesn't happen here on campus, we're seeing about 20%, twenty uh, about 24% of all active shooters happen on in an educational uh, setting, K through 12 and higher ed. Um, so, but we wanna give you the practical skills to really to respond uh, properly, to help you and your family members get out of an active shooter event. Um, so we, we we put on a program. It's about an hour and a half, and we've also incorporated the Stop the Bleed program. It's a national campaign that came out of the Las Vegas shooting, where a lot of uh, a lot of of those bystanders were injured, um, and they some of them didn't survive their their uh, wounds because of going in shock and bleeding to death. So the Stop the Bleed program is a tourniquet uh, where you can you know citizens now can help. Uh, apply a tourniquet in terms of getting us, getting you to a trauma level, uh, care, getting you to a hospital. And and people are surviving those injuries now uh, because of that.
0: Because so when the public has knowledge, a little bit of knowledge can go a long way at a moment of crisis. Oh, wow. And You're I mean, making no, me very so inspired to try that.
1: The other part of the prevention is really we've changed the way we You know, and I won't go into all the details, but the way we patrol our campus in terms of we have sectors now and we have officers assigned to certain sectors and they get to know the people in those sectors. They get to deal with our community members to deal with and address quality of life issues. And the omnipresence alone creates, you know, um, it's preventable. You know, when somebody wants to think about doing something and they see that presence, the visibility of, of our officers out there. Um, and we, we've taken our officers out of the cruisers and we put them on foot beats and we put them on uh, our electric bicycles. We have four electric bicycles that do about 25, 30 miles an hour and the uh, officers love those and, and they get out. And again, it's it's our community members feel like they can approach the officers mm-hmm. uh, better in terms of they're more approachable from a, being on foot in, in a bicycle than, than in a cruiser.
0: Wow, isn't that interesting? So all of those strategies to increase trust are are the result of you recognizing that you are part of the community, You're, your officers are part of the community, and kind of the opportunities for person-to-person engagement can really make a difference. And I feel like learning about the active shooter drill, uh, opportunities to learn, makes me think... Um, i'd rather know I wish I knew how to put on a tourniquet, and why don't I know and that's right. like not that hard to learn and so I feel like learning about small things that I can do as a citizen to be more prepared um, I feel like the the culture of kind of people feeling like helpless and hopeless and there's nothing we can do this is something courageous r i participants come together in our dialogues every two weeks to try to. To solve, because if you feel helpless and hopeless, you're gonna, you may be more likely to be a victim of crime,
1: right? No, <laughs> than no. What, if you feel what, empowered, what you do matters. What you do matters. So, and we really empower you in those trainings in terms of giving you different options, um, giving you the, the practical skill set, giving you different plans of action um, to really help you. You know, sometimes when we have an incident like that, the stress. That incident will take take your muscle memory, take your fine motor skills over, and this really gives you that you know that clear thinking
0: love that love that. I feel like um, that I might put that on my twenty twenty three uh learning plan right because I like I to keep that. learning and i think and I think look, this is a small form of learning that I could do that would help me better understand um Police officers. Uh, do you know, Chief, to go to the last year was the first year I ever rode in a police car, uh, as a ride along out in Austin, Texas, where we were doing some work with the Austin, uh, police, to helping them use video more effectively for learning. And I learned so much from the ride along and my appreciation for police skyrocketed. And I thought, boy, they need to have incredible communication skills to deal with all these people in distress. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think that's a number one skill set. You know, we I, we talked about. It. I went to a uh, active shooter conference yesterday, and, and we got to talk to a lot of SROs. You know, mostly K through twelve. Mm-hmm. And the most important skill that we talked about was the communication skills. Really talking to the students and the and the, and the faculty and staff. Really having those those really effective communications in terms of listening um, and and hearing. You know, dealing with, you know, some of our students that have fear and have, you know, different things that are going on in their life and really listening and and trying to address it.
0: I think we need to do a session and Courageous RI just with the school resource officers and better understand the skills they have and the skills they bring into those communication relationships with uh, children and young people. What a good idea. I'm going to put that on my agenda, too. <laughs> Listen, I'm sorry we're out of time now, but I really enjoyed talking with you, Chief Togota. To. Thank you so much for your service, not just to URI, but to all of us here in Rhode Island. Uh, and thanks for being part of the Courageous RI community. Bye now.